It is our confession. As a church family and as Christians across the ages, going to read for us here at the beginning Article 9, which of course is a rather lengthy article. Of course, it is, as you can see by the italics throughout the article, full of the Word of God itself before we turn to Matthew 28. So let's hear from Article 9. I'll read it. You may follow along as I read. All of this we know as well from the testimonies of the Holy Scripture as from their operations and chiefly by those we feel in ourselves. The testimonies of the Holy Scriptures that teach us to believe this Holy Trinity are written in many places of the Old Testament which are not so necessary to enumerate as to choose them out with discretion and judgment. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, etc. And God created man in his own image, male and female he created them. And Genesis 3, 22, Behold, the man is become as one of us. From this saying, let us make man in our image, it appears that there are more persons than one in the Godhead. And when he says, God created, he signifies the unity. It is true, he does not say how many persons there are, but that which appears to us somewhat obscure in the Old Testament is very plain in the New. For when our Lord was baptized in Jordan, the voice of the Father was heard saying, This is my beloved Son. The Son was seen in the water, and the Holy Spirit appeared in the shape of a dove. This form is also instituted by Christ in the baptism of all believers, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of Luke, the angel Gabriel thus addressed Mary, the mother of our Lord, The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow you. Wherefore also the holy thing which is begotten shall be called the Son of God. Likewise, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. In all these places we are fully taught that there are three persons in one only divine essence. And although this doctrine far surpasses all human understanding, nevertheless we now believe it by means of the Word of God, but expect hereafter to enjoy the perfect knowledge and benefit thereof in heaven. Moreover, we must observe the particular offices and operations of these three persons toward us. The Father is called our Creator by His power. The Son is our Savior and Redeemer by His blood. The Holy Spirit is our Sanctifier by His dwelling in our hearts. This doctrine of the Holy Trinity has always been affirmed and maintained by the true Church since the time of the Apostles to this very day against the Jews, the Mohammedans, and some false Christians and heretics as Marcion, Manes, Praxius, Sibelius, Samostanus, Arius, and such like who have been justly condemned by the Orthodox Fathers. Therefore, in this point, we do willingly receive the three creeds, namely that of the Apostles, of Nicaea and of Athanasius. Likewise, that which conformable thereunto is agreed upon by the ancient fathers. And then it was, of course, referenced in the Article 9 of the Confession, but I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. 
from the Holy Word of God tonight also, Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read from verse 16. And you know why we make such a big deal about Matthew chapter 28 and the Great Commission and the baptismal formula here with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know what to expect because anybody who has spent any time reading the Bible knows that if there's one thing that God does not tolerate, it's sharing His glory. There's one thing that is so upsetting to God, it's someone not acknowledging that He alone is the Lord. He is a jealous God, isn't He? That's obvious in the Scripture. You have to ask yourself as you approach Matthew 28 whether or not this jealous God would ever share His glory with anybody else. Matthew 28:16. this is the Word of God. The eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountains where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So far the reading of God's holy word. So we make a big deal when we're talking about the Trinity out of Matthew 28, because we know that the Lord, the God of Israel, would never share His glory with anybody else. And there is no way in which the Lord of Israel would ever have it be that someone be baptized into the name of another God or of a creature. And so obviously, the idea that we are commanded to be baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit gets us thinking along the right track. That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are the one true God in three persons. God would not have Himself to share His glory with anybody else, to baptize a people in some other name, in the name of one of His creatures. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the one true eternal God. That is our subject uh, tonight. And right at the outset, people of God, dear uh, beloved ones in the Lord Jesus Christ, let's think about where the doctrine of the Trinity is brought up in the context of our confession. I mean, it's no accident that we take the doctrine of the Trinity right after the extended section in the confession on the Word of God itself. I mean, we heard over and over again in various ways that the Word of God the written Word of God is our only authority and we have no right to question what the Word says. In fact, we must submit ourselves in all of our thoughts, in all of our words and all of our actions. Everything we think about God, we have to submit our understanding to the Word itself. And that's especially important, you, you might say, when it comes to understanding the character of God or the nature of God in His uh, holiness as He reveals Himself to be the Trinitarian God. It's especially important because the Trinity is very hard to understand. I mean, this is the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the reasons why people who reject our faith 
look at us and say, you are coming up with these preposterous ideas. Your idea of one God in three persons, that doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, if it sounds like anything, it sounds like all of the paganism and the myths that existed in times past, which nobody believes anymore today. In fact, when people hear us talking about Trinity and they hear us talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they just add the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to all the lists of the ancient pagan gods that people had concocted out of their own imaginations and idolatry. People will say, well, you claim to only believe in one God, but you speak of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's ridiculous. One of the reasons people think that's ridiculous is because it's very difficult to comprehend in the first place even what we're saying, let alone to come to a full understanding of it and acceptance of it, right? But I want you to notice a couple of things at the outset of Articles 8 and 9 here. Look in the beginning of Article 8, which we confessed. According to this truth, the truth of the Scripture being sufficient, right? And to this Word of God, we believe in one only God, who is the one single essence, in which are three persons. So we did not figure this out on ourselves. We did not go into nature to try and uh, put some truth together and then figure out that God is one God in three persons. This teaching comes directly from the Word of God. And our belief of this doctrine, our understanding of this doctrine, comes all from the Word. It's a matter of submitting to what God has said about Himself. Look at the beginning of Article 9. All this we know as well from the testimonies of the Holy Scripture as from their operations and chiefly by those we feel in ourselves. Now, this is an interesting expression. It's talking more about how we come to the assurance of the doctrine of the Trinity, that it's actually true. Of course, it mentions that we come to know this well from the testimony of the Holy Scripture, but notice it says there's something else uh, that indicates to us from the Word that the Trinity is true. It says, as from their operations... All this we know as well from the testimonies of the Holy Scripture as from their operations. What operations? Whose operations? Well, I submit to you the confession here is speaking about the operations or the works of the Trinity. This is what that means. That when you read the Scripture, if you start with the premise that there is one God, which is not denied by anybody who would read the Bible then you read about God the Father and the things that He does, and you read about God the Son, and the, the Son and the things that He does, and you read about the Holy Spirit and the things that He does, it would seem strange not, okay, to worship Christ as God, or not to worship the Holy Spirit as God. We see the operations, for example, of God the Father, and nobody denies that He's God. He created all things. But then when we read about Jesus in the Scripture, we see that He also was involved in the creation of all things. John 1 says, nothing in the world has been made apart from Him. Now, if that's true, something strikes in our minds that idea that it would be wrong to reduce Jesus to something less than God. And what about the Holy Spirit in the act of creation? You read about Proverbs 8 and the power of the Holy Spirit. They're present in the creation. And you think, now something tells me as I'm reading the Scripture, that it would be wrong to make Jesus or the Holy Spirit less than God because their operations in the world are the same operations as those of the Father in some sense, right? And think about salvation, right? Nobody would deny that one of the reasons we look to God and acknowledge Him as God is because He is the one who saves us. 
But we also know when we read the Bible that Jesus is the one who saves also. He is the one who came into the world to do the work of redemption. And the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to see our sin and our need for Christ and makes our dead hearts alive. Now, it would be wrong. We just sense that, don't we, to then say that Jesus is not God. I mean, He's participating in salvation. I mean, the Holy Spirit is the one who comes into our hearts and miraculously makes us alive when we were dead. So, something is telling us. It's not just that the Holy Scripture directly teaches us that God is one and that God the Father is God, and that God the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, but we see the actions, the operations of each of the persons of the Trinity, and something is telling us that then the Trinity must be true. Of course then also Jesus is God, and the Spirit is God. Now notice that last phrase there in the first line, and chiefly by those we feel in ourselves. What are those? The testimonies. The a confession makes a very bold statement here. Says, uses that word chiefly, the main way by which we come to acknowledge and accept and understand the doctrine of the Trinity is by the testimonies that we feel in ourselves. Now that's interesting. We feel the testimony that the doctrine of the Trinity is true. What do you mean feel? Do, do we have Belgian confession, some kind of a, a sensation in our heart? I mean, is it like when someone falls in love and they get really excited? And so is that what, like, when I hear about the doctrine of the Trinity, I get really excited and I know somehow that it's true? Is it Belgic Confession like what the Mormon Church says about when you read their sacred book, the Book of Mormon, that there's a burning in your bosom, a burning in, in, your, in your heart, where you really feel now all of a sudden that it's true? And how come Belgic Confession, can anybody just say that they have a feeling that something is true no matter what they come up with? What are you talking about here? Well, listen, when the Scripture talks, or when the Belgian Confession is summarizing the idea of the Scripture, talking about the Lord testifying to us in our very selves, in our emotions, in our gut, of the truthfulness of the Word of God, it's not like that testimony that He gives, and that assurance and excitement and conviction and confidence that the Trinity is true, it's not like that emotion and that passionate feeling that we get is contrary to what he's already telling us directly in the Scripture, teaching us the doctrine of the Trinity, which we'll see. And it's not like that gut, that emotion, that conviction is contrary to us acknowledging the operations of each of the members of the Trinity and then, of course, saying, well, obviously, the Father and the Son and the Spirit must be God. But you see, we don't shy away from saying that the Holy Spirit is the one who brings into our whole being including our minds and our hearts, the conviction, the assurance that He is the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not wrong for us to say that we feel in ourselves the testimony of the Lord because He's engaging our minds with the truth. And when we come to the knowledge of the truth by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we become excited. We're thankful that the Lord has taught us the truth, that He is real. And we see and look at our lives before when we were maybe lost in ignorance or perhaps as we're growing in the grace and knowledge and the understanding of some more complex doctrines like the Trinity and we're thankful to God. The Lord is speaking to us, the Lord who made us, who designed us to live in His world, to be satisfied with the knowledge of Him, to praise Him, even by thinking rightly about Him. When He instructs us, He instructs our whole being 
to respond with confidence and assurance. So listen, if you're looking for that uh, feeling in yourself tonight, the assurance as we all should, or the strengthening of our assurance that the Trinity is true, then listen to His Word, look at the operations of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and be assured that this is true. Now look at one more thing on the right-hand side of of page 73 there in the Belgic Confession. This is the, the first full paragraph. In all these places we are fully taught that there are three persons in one only divine essence. Now listen to this sentence. And, although this doctrine far surpasses all human understanding, nevertheless we now believe it by means of the Word of God, but expect hereafter to enjoy the perfect knowledge and benefit thereof in heaven. Now this is another way of the confession stating that you're going to recognize as you hear the truth of the Trinity revealed to you that there's something missing that you're not fully able to grasp to get your mind around this mysterious teaching. Now that's a good thing. That means that you're listening, people of God. One of the great problems that we have as human creatures is that we want to understand things about God that He has not revealed about Himself, right? We want everything to make exact sense, to dot all of the I's and cross all of the T's so that we're perfectly full and satisfied. But true knowledge of God sometimes leaves us, what, longing for a little bit more understanding. We recognize that there's something beyond what we're able to know now, and really that's for two reasons. The confession talks about one of them. One of them is, is that we're not in heaven yet. We certainly have not received the glorified mind that we will receive when we will be able to apprehend all of the things of God to the fullness of the measure that we are able to as His creatures. The problem is, in other words, our minds are still trapped in the fallen world, the cursed world, so we're fighting our own, igno- our own ignorance, we're fighting our own pride, we're fighting our own inclinations toward uh, false things, we're fighting our own laziness. So we may not, on this side, obviously, of heaven and of glory, have the full knowledge that we will, but another reason why you're going to sense something is missing is partly because this doctrine is so grand and mysterious, it's talking about God Himself, you'll never be able to understand Him fully. Remember, we're only believing the things about God that He has revealed in His Word. Now, obviously, the glories of God, the thoughts of the glorious God, far exceed the highest heavens of the heavens and far exceed any of His creatures ever. We will never fully understand God, as you've heard us say before. We will never fully understand God as He understands Himself. Otherwise, we'd be God. Our minds will simply never be able to fully grasp all of the depths of the doctrine of the Trinity and the deep and the glories of the nature of God Himself. Uh, So if we're left with a little bit of longing, that's a good thing, or the right thing. If we're left submitting ourselves only to what the Word of God says, that is the good thing, that is the right thing tonight. We should not uh, go forward beyond what the Lord has revealed about Himself and plunge ourselves into heresies, about the Trinity, some of them I'll just mention. We read all of those names on the right-hand column, page 73. Uh, the Jews are mentioned, and that is not a, a racial slur or a racial shot here in the confession that is speaking of the religion of the Jews who have denied uh, the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament religion, and therefore have denied the true God Himself, right? So the Jewish religion 
is not content with God's revelation because they start with the premise that God is one and therefore, because God is one, they say it is nonsense to say that He exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if you start with the premise that God being one excludes the idea that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you'll never believe the Trinity. But you see, what happens is the Jewish religion is relying on human reason to say that, well, it must be. They start with the premise. It must be impossible if God is one in substance and in essence that He is also three persons. Now, we, of course, say to that, well, how do you prove that? What is the basis of you taking that stance? And in fact, we take an opposite stance, not because we figured it out on our own, because the Word of God reveals it to us that way, right? See, we should not let our own concerns right, overthrow the Scripture's revelation or our own initial ideas or impressions. If the Scripture contradicts them, we have to change our minds. The uh, followers of Arius there, the Arians, they do the same thing. They think it's just ridiculous to believe that a man can be also true God. And our answer to that is what? Well, who's to say that that's not possible? And if the Word of God reveals to us that there is the God-man, that there is in the one person of Christ two natures, the 100% God nature, the 100% human nature, then so be it. What is the basis for you to exclude that as a possibility right from the beginning? It doesn't make sense to you initially. Well, it may not make sense to us initially either, but that's not the point of whether or not it makes sense. The point is we submit ourselves to the Word. It's the same thing here with the Mohammedans. You know who that's speaking of? That's speaking of the Muslims. And the teaching of Islam says it is just blasphemy to ever think in any way that God could become incarnate. And your scriptures, your New Testament scriptures are so corrupted. And that is the proof of that. And our question is why? On what basis do you set up that condition that God must meet, that the truth must meet in order for it to be right? I mean, if that's what the scripture teaches, we're bound to follow it. And that is our goal in taking all of the scripture which God has revealed if the premise is, like we said before, that the Scripture is indeed the Word of God, and there's all this information all over the Scripture that is all spoken by God, then we have to put it all together. We have to systematize it very carefully and say everything that every passage says and put that all together, and that's how we come up with the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, silly ideas like, well, the word Trinity is never mentioned in the Bible are not going to cut it. We acknowledge that. So what? We're simply trying to take all of the basic teachings of the Bible, put them together in a system that makes sense, makes sense to a certain degree, submit ourselves to what it says, glorify God for what it says, think of Him in that way. Where our minds are left to wonder, we praise God for His majesty and His truth. The doctrine of the Trinity. This is what the Scripture teaches. The foundation of the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one, right? God is one. When we speak of three, we don't say we believe in three gods. Please, children especially, listen. We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God. One God. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. We are monotheists. One God and one God alone. 
And when the Scripture teaches that the Lord is one, it means a couple of things. The first thing is it means that He is undivided in Himself. In other words, there is only one of Him. There's one numerically. He is of one substance and of one essence. These are the only words that we could come up with to describe what the word one means when God reveals Himself as one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one numerically. He's undivided. There's only one of Him. Substance and essence. The second thing that one means is that He's a single. There is no one else like Him. No one else like Him. He is one qualitatively. Nothing else that has ever existed or that will ever exist can compare itself, can put itself in the same class as the one God. One God. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I myself am He. There is no God beside me. The Lord God Almighty, Isaiah 37, 16, the God of Israel, is enthroned between the angels. He alone is God over all the kingdoms of the earth. He alone is God. Isaiah 44, is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. One God. Galatians 3.20, God is one. 1 Corinthians 8, even if there are so-called gods, right? The apostle here is thinking about all of the so-called gods that are out in the community. You see this today, so many false religions, so many gods that people bow to, they pray to, they think about, they worship. Even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, as people say, yet but for us there is one God, the apostle says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Father from whom all things came, and for whom we live. There is one God, one substance and essence. The Lord our God is one. That is the foundation of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, we don't need to go into any uh, proof, do we, that we obviously believe that God the Father is this true God. And there is no one who argues that uses the Scripture in any sense that God the Father is not the true God except the most radical cults, perhaps like the Mormons who can't really make a distinction between God and between creation. But all of the monotheistic religions which use the Scripture or even other forms of revelation will acknowledge that this God is the Father. We run into opposition, don't we, when we say things like Jesus the Son is true God also. It's not just the Father who is the cause, origin, beginning of all things, but the Son, now as the Word, wisdom, and image of the Father. The Son is one only true God. The Scripture in many ways refers to Him directly as God. John 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thomas cried out to Jesus and said, You are my Lord and my God. Romans 9, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the eternally blessed God. One of the most powerful testimonies of the Scripture that Jesus is the Lord is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. God, the, God speaking in Isaiah 45 is talking about how He will glorify Himself in all of the earth. And all we hear about is God. It doesn't specify the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. It's just God. God says... By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, and by me every tongue will swear. 
That's God speaking in the Old Testament. There's no question about it. By me every knee will bow, or before me every knee will bow, and by me every tongue will swear. And then Paul applies that passage in the New Testament to Christ. Therefore God exalted Christ to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now it it would be blasphemy for Paul to say that about Jesus if he wasn't the true God. Because the prophets said that that would only be done before God himself, that the knees would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the same reason why Jesus was almost stoned repeatedly when he would make the name of the Father, uh, take the name of the Father to himself by saying, I am. You see him over and over attempted to be stoned for the blasphemy of saying that he was God, of taking the divine name to himself. The scripture is very clear that Jesus is the true God. Of course, there are people then who might even acknowledge that, but then when it comes to the Holy Spirit, they say that he's not God. But when you look over the scripture, again, it's evident, it's very clear and direct that, that the Holy Spirit is also a divine person. Isaiah 6, 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Be ever here. Now, who's speaking? He is the voice of the Lord, right? The voice of the Lord says, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understand, Be ever seeing but never perceiving. And when you go to Acts chapter 28, that passage is quoted. What the voice of the Lord said. In Acts 28 it says, The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. So Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit himself, who is God, looks back on the Old Testament scripture, sees the voice of the Lord speaking and says in the New Testament that that is the Holy Spirit speaking. First Corinthians 3.16 Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? So let me get this right, Paul. We are the temple of God. That means God dwells in us. And how does Paul say it? God's Spirit lives in you. The Spirit of God lives in you. We're God's temple. Then we see that the Holy Spirit is true God who lives in us. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit, O Lord? The spirit is omnipresent, therefore he is God. No one else beside God is omnipresent. Where can I flee from the spirit's presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. The spirit of the living God. The proof there in the Belgian Confession of Faith Article 9, on the bottom of the left-hand side, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, the power of the Most High shall overshadow you. That's a parallel statement that is made to Mary, the Virgin Mary, the mother of our Lord. It is said, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, the power of the Most High shall overshadow you. Who is the Most High in that expression of the angel? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is true God. 
Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. This is what we're left with. We're clear indication in the Scripture that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son nor the Father. And yet the three are co-eternal, co-essential. They are true God. According to this truth, Article 8, this Word of God, we believe in one only God who is the one single essence in which are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct according to their incommunicable properties. This is the God that we worship. And by the way, if you don't believe in the Trinity, you might as well be a Muslim, you might as well take up Judaism, you might as well follow any other religious cult because all of their conceptions of God are contrary to the revelation of the true God in the Scripture. You have the Trinity and you have everything. You don't have the Trinity, you have nothing. It is our privilege, along with the early fathers of the church, to have taken from the Word of God this truth and to hold fast to it, to defend it against all kinds of heretics, to stand with our spiritual forefathers in the confession of our historic creeds, the Apostles of Nicene, and the Athanasian Creed. Let me just make this final note, bottom of page 73 on the right-hand side. Notice that phrase, likewise that which conformable thereunto is agreed upon by the ancient fathers. What they're saying there is it's not like the language in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed have the final say on all of the doctrine of the Trinity. For example, the Chalcedonian Creed, which the Belgian Confession borrows language from, and especially in its article about Uh, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Chalcedonian Creed, for example, conforms unto the Trinitarian teaching of the Apostles and the Nicene and the Athanasian Creed, we also agree with it. And we would agree with anybody who walks to us off of the street and says something that is conformable to the truth of God's Word as summarized in the three ecumenical creeds or in the Chalcedonian Creed and other expressions throughout the history of of the church that explain properly the teaching of the Trinity, we would agree with what people say insofar as it reflects uh, that truth. So we stand fast, united as the Christian church throughout time on this doctrine of the Trinity, which if we get rid of, we've gotten rid of our faith because this is God. And to reject this truth is to reject God himself. We say that in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you by the power of your Holy Spirit through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have created all things and that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have saved us from our sins. We thank you, Father, for choosing us. We thank you, Christ, for living and dying for us. We thank you, Spirit, for bringing us to Christ. Help us to impress upon our minds the truth of the Trinity. Help us to avoid the temptation to think that this is not 
uh, important or relevant today as we look around us and see many people following after false gods and many people ignorant of these truths which are necessary unto our salvation. Thank you for the truth. Help us to be satisfied with believing what your word says. We long for the day when our minds will be full, as full as they can be. We'll be fully instructed and conformed to your image and think your thoughts after you and glorify you for who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.